Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, January 5th. We just wrapped up 25 Stocks of Christmas. So this is the first show of the new year. So a bit of a different schedule. No interview today because, uh, well, honestly, it's really hard to get an interview uh, anytime in the new year or around the holiday season. And we didn't feel like bothering anyone. So we're going to wait until next week for our first interview. But we do have our own things. We have our 2020 wrap-up, new predictions. Um, what else? What's your Yeah, I guess we should explain, you know, for people that haven't been, you know, if you came on to the show, I know a lot of people started listening during the 25 Stocks at Christmas thing. If you started then, our typical schedule is just Tuesday. We do a show with an interview and then talk about the big financial news of the week. And then some other segments that you'll probably get used to. Thursday is a deep dive show on a specific company. And then Sunday's also a deep dive on a specific company. So going to be a lot of stock analysis and everything is focused on investing. But yeah, today we're going to do the 2020 wrap up and then heading into 2021. And how did how do you think 25 stocks at Christmas went for us? Now, I tried to go in with a low bar because I knew this is our first time doing it. I think we cleared that bar. wasn't perfect. Uh, probably give us a uh, A minus, B plus. I, from yeah. what my expectations were, definitely wasn't perfect. But yeah, I, I mean, mean, it was all in the interviewees people, too. People seemed to like it, and uh, it was kind of a hassle to get it all together. 25 days in a row wasn't uh, super easy, but it ended up being a pretty big success. And Chit Chat Money is catching steam. We are third in the Caymans. Yeah, we are. Yeah, so <laughs> Ryan was doing some deep, brag. yeah, doing some deep research. Um, we are big in the Cayman Islands. So if you're, you know, wiring some money and uh, trying to evade those tax laws, I guess we are the show for you. And uh, if you're, who is it down? there Raul Powell from uh, Real Vision if you're listening um, thank you uh, okay what uh, what's your news story for the week and you should start titling it you know like something cool uh, okay yeah third point takes activist stake in Intel That's there we go great title descriptive okay my, uh, my title is Peloton is moving outside the home it's basically just an acquisition of Precore which I know is a while ago but we haven't done a show in a while so I'm gonna cover that uh, but without further ado here you go Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Uh, I'll kick things off with my story, Peloton. Uh, once again, sorry if this is from a while ago and you've already seen it covered, but Peloton acquired Precore, and Precore is one of the largest global fitness manufacturers in the world. So, and I think it was a four hundred twenty million dollar deal. They paid four hundred twenty million in cash, which came as a surprise to me. They have, I think, more than a $42 billion market cap now. Yeah. It depends. I don't know. Today was a down day, so it could go anywhere. But is it weird to you that they didn't use stock? Um, it would have been like 1% of the market cap. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough because on one hand, they are cash flow positive. Um, they've only been cash flow positive for a few you know, months here, or maybe a few quarters. So, I mean... You're kind of thinking, all right, we can pay for this with cash, but we have a high expensive currency now with our stock trading at a sales ratio in the 15 to 16 range. Um, they may have done a stock offering. That might be something we should have looked up like a few months ago. So if they had that stock offering and then they use that to buy or they have like a convertible note or another bond offering and they use that to buy um, 
you know, pre-core that's kind of inadvertently buying it with stock. Yeah. Uh, I but I, I would have rather had them buy it with stock. I wonder if they offered... I mean, because they can always like I've heard that when a company's getting acquired, sometimes they just prefer to have it all in cash. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're what a pre-core, if you're like yeah, yeah, tied to a lockup, or if you know everyone thinks that this is a work from home stock and they're all about to get a bunch of a work mm-hmm. from home stock and then stuff reopens and they're screwed. That's potential. Yeah, yeah there's I potential there. But there's also, um, I think, when someone acquires someone with cash, that ceiling's a little bit higher. Yeah. So they may have had to pay more if it was all in cash. Or sorry, in all in stock. Uh, so they said in their press release, this acquisition is expected to establish Peloton's U.S. manufacturing footprint, enhance R&D capabilities, and accelerate growth of commercial verticals. Uh, so I actually really like this acquisition. I wrote a paper on it on The Motley Fool. Feel free to check it out. Get my numbers up. <laughs> oh, paper. Paper. Uh, really? Uh, right. All right. Yeah. A uh, full-blown. Yeah. full 400-word paper. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really extensive, but... Uh, yeah, so Precor's got two manufacturing facilities. So one is on the East Coast and think in North Carolina, and then one is on the West Coast right next to our offices, actually, in Louisville. Oh, no way, really? Yeah, kind of interesting. We'll have to, uh, we'll have <laughs> to go check them out. Wow. It's on the ground research. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think the big gripe with Peloton was that their like backlog was so big that uh, people were waiting like months to get their bikes, which... It's not, you know, people hear that for Ferrari and they're like, great, they have so much demand or like Boeing. They're like, great, tons of demand. You don't want that for like a Christmas toy that you're going to use, Mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, yeah, they were importing all the bikes and treadmills and stuff from Asia, which was extending how long it took now with the manufacturing on the East and the West Coast. Hopefully they can get it to the U.S. consumers faster. Um, And I think that's largely what the acquisition had to do with. Also, Precore has a lot of relationships with gyms, hotels, commercial buildings. So, um, you know, if you've been in one of those little hotel gyms, you've probably seen like a Precore. Elliptical. Elliptical. I don't know. They might do treadmills. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I guess the vision there for Peloton is that. those relationships slowly start to uh the 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 gyms and the hotels start to buy peloton devices instead and then uh you can you basically if you're a peloton member you can go use the bike sign into your uh, account right from there your subscription and you automatically have all your data and stuff like that um so i guess that's the part where it's taking it outside of the home they also said that they're adding a hundred new employees to their research and development team uh they have like hundreds of patents around ellipticals and some Ooh, really Pel- Peloton or Precore? Patents. Precore. Uh, okay. And so they did, they get those patents through this, which helps them possibly expand their uh, product suite. So if you, I mean, I don't know if there will be a Peloton offering for an elliptical, but, yeah. and most Peloton members are probably like, why on earth would I use that? But if it just uh, attracts older people, who cares? Like it doesn't mm-hmm. change you, you know, you're just getting more bang for your buck with your subscription. Uh, but just all in all, what do you think of this um, price that they paid? And then sort of what do you think it actually provides for them as far as opportunity going forward? Yeah. So I don't know anything about what Precore's revenue numbers are. Um, so I'm assuming it was a fair price. It might be a little bit inflated um, on like an earnings multiple or something like that. But you know, compared to their market cap, 400 million is not a big deal, but it is a big deal for Peloton to try to make the community offering, the subscription offering, have it have more of a competitive advantage because there's companies like Nautilus, 
There's companies like, I mean, there's a few other competitors. You've seen a lot Nordic of copycat. Yeah, Nordic Trek. There's a lot of competitors out there now with the hardware that's similar. Now, Peloton has the scale where they can make it slightly cheaper. But again, these things are all going to be 2000 3000 bucks. But the differentiation for Peloton, if you believe in the company, it has to come from that subscription membership. And if they can get it into a bunch of hotels, into a bunch of apartments, into a bunch of gyms where you could do a cross membership with uh, the local gym um, and have that Peloton instructor already there, that could be a big competitive advantage for that subscription offering how much is that worth i'm not sure and there's a lot of variables at play this is a very dynamic system uh, but i think it's probably smart because that can hopefully build that moat over time um they i mean it's also, tough to or go ahead also like if you're going to the gym and let's say i mean there's plenty of people that go to the gym and ride on those stationary bikes if you can do that with your peloton and gyms are starting to reopen uh, there's yeah. less reason for you to churn. Yep, yep, yeah. They're all, I mean, the key is like from a really fundamental standpoint is they want to limit churn. And this could hopefully help people do that. Say if you're a travel person, if you're a business traveler and you can get at, say, I don't know, what you're a Marriott member or Hilton member or something mm-hmm. like that. And at every one of those hotels, you can partner and be a Peloton member and do a real class there. I mean, I think that'd be. You know, that would add the value to the subscription for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right, what's your uh, story? Okay, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll try to come up with a real headline. Um, third point. Well, no, I don't even know. They took, uh, an, activist yeah, they took an activist stick. Yeah, come on. Well, you were complaining about my uh, <laughs> Next time. not creativity here. Uh, so Dan Loeb, um, his hedge fund, third point. He's actually a resident of Finn Twitter now. Um, he is a new. I think what three months ago he joined. Yeah, he's a yeah classic noob whale on uh, Twitter, right? But no, no, no he's not a, a new, but he's a new member. No, nah, yeah, I was just trying to make the uh, oh, right. the animal spirits joke. But the yeah, they, they took uh, his hedge fund third point. So it's not just him um, has taken a one billion dollar stake in Intel. It is an activist stake, clear activist stake. Uh, Intel is supposed to explore, quote, strategic alternatives, which is, as we know, the classic activist lingo. Uh, Some more details. Third point is asking Intel to immediately do something to strengthen its position in the PC and data center markets. They talk about how Intel has lost its leadership position to TCM. Uh, which is Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung. Those are the two bigger competitors, one obviously in Taiwan, the other one, Samsung, in South Korea. Uh, The other companies have gotten down to a five nanometer chip. Uh, If you don't know anything about semiconductors, smaller just equals faster. Um, And then while Intel has been stuck at about a 14 nanometer chip for a few years now, which has really lagged them behind on speed. And I mean, when it comes down to these things, it's all about speed versus, the you know, the price you're going to pay. And I mean, you're, you're not going to choose something that's slower. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know chips that well. I'm not going to pretend that I do, but from anything I've read, they are dropping the ball. Uh, yeah. It sounds like AMD on one side of it and uh, AMD and NVIDIA are on one side sort of taking market share. And then on the other side, Taiwan Semiconductor just doesn't look good for Intel. I might also note that I don't think there's anyone more passive aggressive than an activist investor. Yeah, they're very uh, passive passive aggressive and actually uh, the you know the VC Josh Wolf or big uh, fans of him yeah. and they're it's, it's interesting to follow what they do over at Lux Capital. Um, he had a whole thread I think a year ago or something like that but basically outlined the same plan. So he was like, "All right, you're welcome Dan for uh, giving you the strategy for an activist hedge fund." So a lot of people have been saying that 
someone needs to take an activist stake in Intel for a while now, especially because there's also the geopolitical risk where the United States oh, itself right. might not want the semiconductor technology to all be in East Asia. Yeah. You know what I mean? So Intel is like a strategic and important partner or something like that. And uh, it's just going to be interesting to see how this works. Um, I guess I'll tell, have a quote here from the letter. Uh, it, it, if you're the Intel CEO um, or the chairman of the board or whoever here, um, you're probably feeling a lot of heat. I mean, it's not a job anyone wants right now, but I'll read a quote from the letter here. It says, from a governance point of view, we cannot fathom how the boards who presided over Intel's decline could have permitted management to fritter away the company's leading market position while simultaneously rewarding them handsomely with extravagant compensation packages. Not a good look. That's a nice way of saying you guys are all overpaid. Yeah. And Dan Loeb and the third point is famous for really mean um, and passive-aggressive hedge fund letters, I think that's where you're getting that stereotype from. I love a good passive-aggressive uh, activist letter. It's like, exciting. I mean, it also gets the other investors in... in, in uh, we're going to explore alternatives. Yeah, we're going to explore... strategic. Yeah, we're going to explore strategic alternatives. Um, it's kind of how Jack Dorsey is probably feeling um, yeah. at Twitter. Uh, but the only question I have here, does Intel have any appeal to you with an activist on the board. I kind of know your, your well, answer with yeah. Intel because you don't really know. You said before you don't understand them as well, but what do you think? I, I mean, it's a huge name. Yeah, no, I, I lack conviction uh, in the company. And, and Gavin Baker once wrote a piece on Medium about how he tried to invest in like this CPU market. Mm-hmm. And he's a really smart guy. And he was basically saying, after all this research I did, I was completely wrong. Um, and it just makes me feel like if... He built all that conviction and was completely wrong. I have a better chance at being wrong. So, yeah, no, that doesn't really appeal to me, but uh, I always like to see activists take any stake. It's always entertaining. It is always very entertaining. Um, Yeah, it's weird because Intel seemed to have the ultimate moat. They had such great economies of scale. No one could touch them for decades um, and now they just eroded that over like one decade. They were one of those like Microsoft. It was them and Microsoft where people were saying that this is like it's almost unapproachable because the thing about these semiconductor chips is you have to invest like $10 billion a year to get to the scale where you can actually be profitable and have the technology. So the fact that Intel let this happen and just go to whatever the other two competitors or I mean, there's a few others, NVIDIA's and GPUs and things like that. But it's interesting. They, they've dropped the ball over the last few years here. I think, I, I think I'm starting to get the understanding for why a lot of fund managers choose to stay at a certain AUM, like not go over it, because uh, yeah. I think they have like $16 billion in AUM. And so that sort of limits what they can invest in that gives a meaningful return. And mm-hmm. you start like if Dan Loeb had... Uh, like 500 million in AUM, I don't think it would be spent at in like investing in Intel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and you can also take an activist stake. I mean, this is back to the uh, Buffett days in the 50. I mean, he was taking activist stakes in, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, and they were like a $10 million company. If you can take activist stakes in a lot smaller ones, it's not going to be on CNBC, but um, it's actually, you know, meaningful for a smaller company like that. Okay. I, uh, I'm going to go ahead and get out my, because that's all you have, right? Yeah, that's it for that story. All right. Current state of FinTwit. I think there's one obvious one that we have to talk about. Uh, okay. Because we missed all of December. Uh, so Bitcoin is back. Uh, I, I, if you're on Twitter, you already knew that. Um, 
honestly, if you were anywhere, you probably knew that. Um, yeah, I like heard a CrossFitter dilemma. Like, how does how do you know if someone does CrossFit? They tell you. Yeah. How well, do you know if someone owns Bitcoin, they, they tell, tell you. you. Well, hey, they they actually mentioned it on Sunday Night Football last night, so that's when you know the top is coming in. Okay, uh, but I mean, did anyone have a better twenty twenty than the Tesla and Bitcoin bros? No, that's and, hard uh, to top. Hell of a year for them. Yeah, and it's very disappointing to me because I typically. I don't want to say anything, but you, yeah, it's um, I, I'm just not I'm not excited. About I will it. say all the kids I knew from college that I was like, this guy is full of it, are dancing around me right now as far as returns yeah. go. Yeah, a lot of people are talking to me in similar strategies. You know, most of them aren't trying to be um, rude. They're not trying to be rude. They're just saying like, hey, look, you got to invest in Tesla, dude. You got to invest in Bitcoin. This thing's soaring and. Here's the that, other, cons that concerns me. It concerns me. Here's the me. other thing. You know what Buffett didn't do or any great investor didn't do is they never invested in something and then they're like, anyone who doesn't is an idiot. That's yeah. typically a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. If your uh, whole goal is to just get mass adoption from everyone else. It's probably not an asset. Then maybe you're owning it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Big, Bitcoin uh, seems like the purest Ponzi scheme of all time it's we're, so we're probably triggering pure. a lot of listeners right now so we apologize <laughs> no no i mean i'm saying it's like the it's psychology so is the part that pisses it, me off it's such a pure ponzi scheme because they admit up front everyone admits up front that there's no intrinsic value which means the price can be whatever it wants which means there's no defending what the price shouldn't be like how low it should be which means you can defend it at any high price so i mean it's like that's to say it can, it can go to a million dollars or it can go to one dollars I wouldn't be surprised. Today, Jesse Livermore was like, does anyone want to call the top on digital tulips? Which, if you don't know, is from like the whole tulip mania thing. And the amount of anon accounts in his mentions trying to describe like the financial system to him. I was like, dude, this, <laughs> this guy is the smartest. The brilliant, most brilliant people on Twitter. Yeah. And that's uh, the pseudonym. If anyone's thinking about the real Jesse Livermore, he did okay. die in the Great Depression. But Okay. I, that's all I had. That was basically all what right. Twitter's been all about for the last month. So uh, Yeah, that is true. I may have to start muting Bitcoin, but we'll see. We'll get another week. It's kind of entertaining. Uh, all right. I did a poll uh, right on New Year's Eve uh, because I want to do this over the next three years. I'm probably going to update everyone every six months or so, but don't hold me to the fire on that. I said, starting January 1st, what will have a better three-year performance? One, FanMag, which is Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, equally weighted, or Berkshire Hathaway B-Shares. 81% said FanMeg and only 19% said Berkshire. What are your thoughts? I might agree. I might agree. Uh, I feel like I've been betting against FanMeg for like the last two years. I'm like, oh, their returns are... I just kept saying law of large numbers, but that applies to Berkshire now too. So it's like, I don't know. They've... You always say like how much more can it grow, but then it's continuing to grow almost all of them in the double digits. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to well, well that. Yeah. I mean, some of them's some of their earnings aren't, but you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I would take most of those Facebook, Google, the the whole regulatory pressure thing. I'm not even sure that's a problem. Yeah, Facebook and Google seem like uh, they're at some you know like what's, like reasonable. They're I mean very reasonable prices right now. I would say if you broke down FanMag into its parts, so you take Amazon, sever the AWS business, and you take Facebook and sever Instagram, and you take Google and you sever YouTube, the market cap combined will be higher. 
Oh yeah, but that's not the question. Sure, but I'll take I'll take fan mag. All right. Um, hmm, I don't know. I that's one of my things for our twenty twenty one prediction. So I'll, I'll keep mine. That's where it was inspired by that. So I'll keep my prediction for later. Okay. Is that all you have? Yes. Okay. Twenty twenty wrap up. I've got a whole bunch of questions here. So the first one is two things that we got right in twenty twenty. Um, uh, for me, I'll be honest. The only thing I got right happened to be my stock picks because I could not accurately predict anything else that happened in the world. Apparently, <laughs> what was? Yeah, you you were uh, you did call bottom on Square. Yeah, I didn't put truthfully that not even an irony way. Like you did. Uh, yeah, Spotify. We well, I was thinking more around the thesis, but we called the whole podcasting thing. Uh, was, that was oh, was, um, sort of change the narrative, and we think it did. Uh, and that's true. Yeah. Probably had an insight to that, being that we have a podcast. Um, the other one, uh, transition to CTV, uh, seems like it accelerated. So I guess we got that right as well. Oh, we did accurately predict the demise of WeWork. Yeah, which everyone did, but we were still right. Yeah, so uh, if, I, I guess I don't know anyone that was optimistic about WeWork. If they went, do you, do you think they could have gone public today through a SPAC? Yeah. Yeah, that's what worries Sponsored me. by SoftBank? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that that's what worries me right now is that WeWork could have gone public today. It's and that thing was a dumpster fire. Like, SoftBank could have done every one of the private rounds and then SPAC'd them. Like, you're just themselves. SoftBank. Yeah. Uh, so crazy. All right. Anyway. Makes me a bit sick. Okay. Well, what did you have right in 2020? Okay. This is a bit of a, all right. I got this right, but I was looking at, you were sending me our old show notes, uh, from our 2020 show, which was very depressing. And I'll tell you why, because these are two things I got right. One, we were saying five stocks we were looking at for 2021. Yeah. Um, and it's I think Christmas list. It was the Christmas list. Yeah, we were trying to do something like that. And I believe I said Match Group, which I already owned. And I said C Limited, Solar Edge, and something else that did well. But mm, I got it up. Uh, it was, yeah. So I said C Limited and Solar Edge, which have both done phenomenally this year. C Limited has absolutely crushed it. Guess how many shares I actually owned of C Limited or Solar Edge? Well, I know how many. Shares you own, you own zero. I own zero. Yeah. So if I would have just Zoom. You own you called Zoom, right? Well uh yeah, what we don't need to talk about that one. Yeah, I wrote at the IPO <laughs> that Zoom is the IPO to watch this year. Oh, I'm I never, pretty sure that was a part of your five. No, that was that was your five. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. But either way, and you also had Stitch Fix, which we did buy, but it's neither here nor there. Uh but I I was technically right about those things, but um Financially you were wrong. Financially I was wrong and it's just heartbreaking. It's it's very heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. All right, um, any others? Nope. Those are those two. Those okay, two. two things I got wrong. Oh, last year, so we did this. We asked, I think, this same question of twenty twenty one or twenty twenty predictions, and I predicted that we would not see a thirty percent drawdown for the entire decade. <laughs> that took all but all but two oh months. Oh my god! To be uh, wrong. Wow. Sorry. Sorry Instantly, for laughing. But I think it worked. It worked out. Yeah. It helped, you know. Yeah, it was fine. And it was quick, but uh, oh, yeah, man. I was instantly wrong on that. So, and I think. I think I was just predicting that to be like ultra contrarian because everyone was already calling top before yeah. the the COVID happened. So, uh, what did, do you know what I predicted? I was forget probably that Tesla was going to go bankrupt. That was probably it. Yeah, well, that obviously I guess we were wrong about that. And then uh, I was totally wrong on Peloton. I thought it was just for rich people. Um, 
and now it's I've kind of flipped my thesis on them, I guess. Uh, the other one, I thought Robinhood traders would have been washed out by now. And you know what? We keep seeing these little mini stock bubbles, yeah. like in individual mini stock bubbles. And I keep thinking like, how long can this go on for? Like, how long are we going to see like things like Hertz be revived? I don't think it's ever going to go away. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Wall Street Bets. We talked to the founder of Wall Street Bets, Jamie, I think was his name. I forget. Rogozinski. Rogozinski. Yeah, tough last name. But we talked to him. It's a powerful place. Groupthink is a powerful concept. They, yeah, they have a lot of firepower behind those um, call options, and they can do some manipulation on some smaller companies. Yeah. yeah. It's just uh, it's not quite illegal yet. So. Yeah. I mean, if you have been on Wall Street Bets and you've been on Robinhood, you've been in a good spot. Yeah. So Robinhood, yeah. Yeah. I would have thought Robinhood would have been washed out as well, but they're as strong as ever. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you have? Okay. These are simple. I thought Uber would be worth a lot less in 2021 than it is. And I, think uh, I won that bet. Yeah. We had a bet for Airbnb. Oh, wait. Maybe not oh, anymore. I don't no, know. No, it ended. It ended. Um, we should, I it was a their, long time ago. but It, it, it already ended. If it ended now, it would be a lot closer because Airbnb had that crazy IPO. But yeah, I thought Uber would be worth a lot less, and it is not. I also thought that Tesla would be worth a lot less. And as we all know, it is not. It's worth about 10 times more. Yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that was the, you can see why we don't short. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are pretty uh, bad at it, I guess. Uh, yeah, we're. I'm. I'm really. I can be bad at theoretical shorts forever. So the uh, the appeal is always there, though. Yes. Like the, yeah. The, it definitely entices you. And oh yeah. Robinhood making it as easy as they do makes it even more enticing. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, that's that's all your. That's what you got wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, one lesson uh, for 2020. Uh, what, what did you learn this year? Okay. I think a lot of people learn this. You find out what companies you actually believe in when they all fall 35%. Yeah. So there's a few companies I owned. I was probably only one or two that I realized when the stock dropped, I was like, eh. I mean, this was either like a dumb value play or it was something that I didn't actually believe in. And I just read some things about that. And I kind of figured out that I can never really, you have to either, I mean, you can learn about companies from other people. You can pick up things from Twitter, from ideas, but you have to really like, I think I heard them talking about this on value after hours. They talk about this a lot where you have to internalize the idea and make sure you understand why you would have conviction or why you do have conviction in it. Because if something dips 30, 40%, um, you got to be confident that the business is still there. That's really interesting because we had Matt Cochran on, I don't know, however many times ago, and he said his big advice was you can't borrow conviction. Uh, yeah, that's another way to say and it. And yeah. I used to think like, eh, well, you know, you can kind of borrow conviction. Someone else gives you a good stock idea and you take it or whatever. Uh, but when things go poorly, then it then you start being like, okay, let me read some of these earnings reports again and make yeah. sure I understand the business. Like, yeah. I feel like I definitely went through that this year where you're starting to go through the balance sheet over and over again to see if they can actually weather the storm. Mm -hmm. um, and I also learned that if something you own goes up 100%, you may be taking more risk than you think. Yeah, which is a shame because it's funny. Like I sit there and I'll be like, this is undervalued, this is undervalued. And I'd be like, this could be twice as big. And then it gets twice as big. And I'm like, I don't know if I really believe in this anymore. That's like, yeah. I've been shouting this the whole time. And that can, uh, can, that can teach you some things as well. Yeah. Um, okay. One lesson for me is I remember always thinking like, uh, 
why aren't people more aggressive during drawdown? So, you know, like when you look back at whatever SPY charts, you just always look at 2009. You're like, well, if you would have just bought the bottom over and over or bought as it was going down, like, or you held, you'd be just fine. But then like this year, I kept having the feeling as we were coming back, like I didn't have that much trouble when we were selling, like when everything was selling off because really it took like three days to drop 30%. (laughs) Well, two weeks, but still, that's really rapid. And then it was when it came back up and I was like, all right, this is fake. Then I started to lose conviction. I was like, this is uh, propped up. Mm. It's not real. And I felt like everyone was thinking the same way. Yeah, it's a little bit of a investor psychology there. And so I, yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I guess just things are never as bad or as good as they seem. Chances are just like be more practical. It's probably not going to end in the best case or the worst case scenario. Yeah, unless you're uh, – I mean, for example, we talk about this a lot, but this is really the big lesson we learned this year. In March, when we at Research Square, so like we knew that company inside and out, and we understood that the, uh, the seller business was going to be screwed for a while – um, the PPP loans and all that stuff did end up helping. But if there was no federal support, that part of the business was totally screwed. But we understood the cash app would be really beneficial from something like this. Uh, yeah. So we basically underwrote that the cash app is probably going to be worth upwards of like $40, $50 billion. At some point, that's kind of what we would uh, you know estimate on what they're – I mean, whatever. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, so we were investing on that solely on that, but then we get that. I mean, you just get lucky that the federal government bailed out the seller business almost. And yeah, you know, that's just kind of like another $50 billion business that got added on top. I mean, you can't say that was skill when that company seven X to like that, but yeah. The other thing is, uh, I think Brian Chesky at Airbnb was like, uh, companies are either broken by crises or defined by them or whatever. And at the time I was like, all right, that's just bullshit you probably tell yourself to like uh keep morale going at the office but now like looking back on it some of the actions square took um where they were helping out their sellers instead of saving costs or i mean that's probably helping them a lot now in the better times Mm -hmm. and so I, i think that uh it feels a lot more real and it uh now that we've kind of gone through it it just feels like a more powerful statement yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 2021 predictions. You want me to go? Yeah, sure. All right. First one, the EV spec bubble will burst sometime this year. Did I steal yours? You stole mine. Yeah. So the EV spec bubble, I consider all those companies that are pre-revenue, the ones that are basically like Nikola, but don't have a CEO that's just lying all the time. Uh, they're just overvalued, not just overvalued and a fraud, but yeah, you know, there's companies like what's the ticker QS that's valued oh, at fifty billion. The one that was zero. down like forty percent this morning. Oh, great! So I'm already making that prediction. Fantastic. Uh, and then you know I put Tesla in that as well because they're valued as much as the entire auto market and are going to need upwards of twenty million vehicles produced. Um, they're going to have to invest upwards of fifty billion dollars in capital. Uh, there's just there are. I was trying to calculate their ROIC. It's under two percent. So. When, which is below their weighted average cost of capital, which I still um, don't understand too much about weighted average cost of capital, but I understand that you don't want something, an ROIC number, you want it to always be above 2% because if your cost of capital is typically around 2% and your returns on that invested capital are to under 2%, that means the company is becoming worth less. But suffice to say, my first prediction is that the EV spec bubble will burst. And if it doesn't, um, 
It's, okay. it's, well, go ahead, go ahead. No, mine's the exact same. And so I think the EV market now, this isn't like a bet against electric vehicles. You know, they there will be definitely some winners. And yes, the future is probably electric. Uh, but the winners are probably going to be the incumbents. It's like really hard to just build an auto business from nothing. And uh, yeah, I, I think companies like Nikola, who still has that's somehow a valuation. I don't even know how that's possible. Doesn't it have a 10 billion or? Yeah, Neo, uh, oh, right, Neo. charging, stuff like that. Like uh, Tesla, I think, will be a part of the EV market. But it, it will probably shrink. I think the capital is coming in early. It feels like cannabis from 2018. Yes, there's going to be success, uh, but most companies will fail or do poorly. And returns are going to be hard to come by. I will. I am confident in saying that as a whole, the EV SPACs and you know Tesla and Neo put them in there. As a whole, these companies are going to return. Not even if they take over the entire auto industry. The returns will be, f- I mean, they'll be flat. They've already priced in a dominance of the entire auto industry. What other returns are there? Whatever. Okay. I'll, I'll go to my second yeah. one. Do you want me to go? All right. It relates to that Fan Mag Berkshire thing. I do think that Berkshire Hathaway will outperform Fan Mag in 2021. This one isn't really that exciting of a prediction, and I have less confidence in it because it's all about, you know, one year time horizon. It's kind of hard to do. And I don't really, we don't really like investing in either of these companies, anyways, because they're all large. But I do think from where Berkshire's priced right now, if you out, you know, um, take out the cash on their balance sheet. I haven't paid much attention to Berkshire in the last year. Uh, I, I haven't looked at any other earnings or anything like that. But so. I, yeah, I do think FanMag. Um, I don't know. I think Berkshire outperforms them. Bit of a um, rotation there. Yeah, I, I hate value? I hate I hate betting on rotations because that's just a tough thing to do over a short period of time. But um, I guess yeah, because we're just having fun with this. Okay, uh, this is more of a decade prediction, but I do think the end of COVID will sort of mark the start of a roaring 20s like decade and i I, uh there's a lot of pent-up demand for partying for travel for celebrating i mean i know a lot of people that are like can't wait to go to the bar it it feels and i don't think there could be a more uh polarized political spot that we're in now so i think that will become easier over the next 10 years uh i think environmental awareness is sort of higher there's all that money pouring into esg i feel like first comes capital and then comes the actual change hopefully uh and so yeah and i think people are kind of urged irking to pile back into cities and i know a bunch of the older people that listen to this podcast like yeah no way but trust me a single yeah people our age are looking to get into the cities it just feels like if uh, the vaccine is well adopted and it works, this maybe is a baby boomers type situation. <laughs> maybe, maybe. It, uh, I mean, this summer, I don't know what's priced in, but I think this summer um, the travel boom is, is, I mean, people are talking about it, but I think like it's still underrated how insane it's going to be. Like it's almost it's a consensus that there's going to be a travel boom because you can kind of see that there's the pent up demand. I think that's just, you know, two step thing you just got to think about. But I think people are underrating how big it's going to be. It's going to be insane. Everyone wants to travel for like three weeks next summer. They're all everyone wants all the rich people want to go to Europe and stuff like that. Yeah, there's I mean, there's also the, you know, 
the markets give people like a fake sense of uh, financial stability. You know, if you have yeah. a lot of money in four hundred one k or whatever, you think you're richer than you are. So I don't think liquidity is going to be an issue in this. So it's not like we're coming out of some depression. It just and, feels and like a lot of things are prepping up well for the 20s. Oh, and the savings rates have been off the charts. I mean, people joke about, you know, putting my stimmy in Dogecoin, but the uh, in all reality, the savings rates have been so high that people are going to want to spend money on things other than, I don't know, a Zoom subscription this summer. Yeah. Um, okay. Favorite podcast of 2020. What do you have? Yeah, I try to keep this investing related. So I just did invest like the best with Jesse Livermore, uh, who we talked about earlier. Um, that's his nickname, the real Jesse Livermore. It, it's just uh, a reference to the Jesse Livermore who lived in the early 1900s, who was considered to be the best trader of that era. Um, and yeah, he had a show out with Patrick on that, you know, show that everyone knows about. Um, and it was just great. It was talking about how the economics are working right now. And he's one of the only people that can explain how the economy works in relationships to markets, large cap growth, small cap value, how it all works together. Um, and it's just a fascinating listen. You learn a lot. Yeah. Uh, mine's probably a little more basic, but I like the business brew with our friend Bill Brewster and uh, Dan McMurtry. I like oh, yeah, that one good in particular. One. Yep. Good one. Um, and then this this one's not investing related, but the podcast, the Spotify original series, where they like explain the inner workings of the office production, where it's uh, Kevin Malone's like the host. Oh, uh, really? He brings on, yeah, he brings on all the guests. So Jim Halpert, which John Krasinski, yeah. all those people. Uh, that was pretty interesting. And uh, and it's from Spotify. So <laughs> yeah, as, we, as everyone knows, that, yeah, the, for the Spotify Bowl uh, gang, right? Okay, favorite TV show from 2020? Uh, this one's not that investing related because, I mean, there's really only a few. Um, I liked Yellowstone. It's kind of business related. Um, it's about this guy who owns a ranch in Montana and has to defend it from new people that are uh, trying to you know take over the land. It's really valuable, build like a ski resort, things like that. Um, a, lot of, a lot of fighting, as you expect in Montana. A lot of gunfights, stuff like that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think I watched like the first two episodes, but uh, maybe I'll get into it again. I'm going to go Mandalorian. Pretty basic, uh, but you know, any Disney fans uh, or any Star Wars fans know that that was a pretty good series. Uh, yeah, really, per- really propelled Disney Plus, right? Definitely. They, they hit that first show. They got it. They got a uh, perfect. Okay. Uh, book. Book. Uh, I kept this one investing related. Uh, it's called The Number. Uh, I forget the author's name, but if you just look up The Number... I think it'll show up. It's about how the earnings per share number evolved and became the number where if someone had an earnings beat, you know what I mean? They announced just the number for earnings per share and everything reacts all based on that one number, how it evolved, how companies manipulated it, how it ended up turning into fraud in the early 2000s with the telecom companies, Enron, et cetera, things like that. It sounds a little bit nerdy, but for anyone that's interested in investing in individual companies, I think it's really insightful. It goes through all the history of that. Okay. Mine was quality investing. Uh, I don't know if you've read that one. But I have, I've not. Who's it by? Um, I'm blanking on the name. And it's kind of a bland name of a book. Uh, but I don't yeah. have the author here. I think it was kind of done by a fund. Like 
if I'm not mistaken, it felt like it was in the uh, like tone of from like a funds perspective. Okay. And they really go into like what actually drives businesses and then what drives performance, which in turn drive for, drives returns. Uh, so that one was interesting. And then the co-founder of Netflix, I'm blanking on this book name as well, wrote a book a long time ago from his perspective. So it's not Reed Hastings. It's the other guy. Uh, and that one was pretty, pretty entertaining as well. Not not ride of a lifetime with Bob Iger talking about the. Uh, <laughs> it was good. I think that was like a 2019 one, but uh, this guy like uh, he gives a better insight to how smart Reed was than Reed does in his book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, but I think that's all we have for the first half. We're gonna hit a quick break, and then we have our hot water, buy, sell, hold, and anecdotal evidence. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back in. Next up, we have hot water. Um, you want me to go first? I only have two. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Jack Ma seems to be in hot water uh, because uh, and this is a pretty crazy story, but in October, Ma delivered a pretty scathing speech about Chinese uh, regulatory or regulation stifling innovation, and this was kind of all around his ant financial thing, and now he, he, he can't be found. Yeah. Um, which, if that doesn't give you pause as an investor in Chinese companies, I mean, I, I don't know what does because we've seen everything in 2020, and I, I don't know if this is 2019, but uh, like 2020, yeah. 2020, the luck and coffee thing. Obviously, that's a concern that should give a huge red flag to anyone investing in China. And then this, like, the founder, the richest guy in China, if I'm not mistaken, is gone. Yeah, the richest guy might be the or, founder of Tencent, but who knows? So but. Apparently, just, they just can't find him or they don't know where he is. Yeah, but. he could just be hiding uh, and he might not be dead or in prison or something like that. But in all reality, when the CCP has control over these, they're essentially state-run enterprises. You are betting on what company the CCP likes. And that's just not a bet you can make. You're also investing in these ADRs, which are typically Cayman Island uh, shell companies. Uh, I know it's a very complicated structure that they actually have. So one, if you're someone who like us wants to know what you're investing in, and two, wants to have a business that you can predict the earnings over the next you know decade that isn't controlled by an outside forces. Um, yeah, I mean, why would you ever invest in China? Yeah. Uh, second one for me. I don't know who's in hot water for this. I guess a lot of people, maybe Twitter. But did you see the video of the Boston Dynamics robots just dancing around? Yeah, those are. I think those are overrated. Yeah, those are overrated. They could. I, I feel like they could post uh, like a video of it just walking around, and everyone would be like, "This is it. This is the end." Yeah, I've seen some uh, jokes from like comedians, and they're right. Like, all right, well, you know how to defend that? Throw some rocks. We'll put some marbles out there. Because if robots still cannot walk on anything that's not a flat surface, so I mean, it, it's it's all just uh, for show. It's a it's an entertainment thing. Yeah, I think I feel like people overhype those. Oh yeah, I mean it's oh, like yeah. it's moderately more impressive than my Roomba, and I'm not uh, <laughs> I'm not sitting there applauding it all day. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, I don't know. They're they're cool the first time. Now we've had like eight of them, and uh, yeah, I mean, not as exciting. Not as exciting. Okay, that's the only two I had. All right, my other one I had Jack Ma as well, so I have two others. Um, Haven, which was the J.P. Morgan Amazon Berkshire Hathaway Healthcare Partnership, that is officially ending. Mm-hmm. Um, does this show? Is this a big you know statement on how healthcare is just so complicated? Like. It's just, yeah. I mean, these companies all have like a million, no, not a million workers. Amazon and Berkshire may have close to a million um, workers. I know Amazon does, JP Morgan a little less. They all have 100,000 workers or so. That is, I mean, they can't have the scale to do something. I mean, that's insane. They might have just stopped doing it and felt like their role wasn't that necessary, but. Uh, it's tough. Yeah. I, you can't just enter. There are certain industries that you can't just, with all the money in the world, enter. Like Google yeah. tried to do fiber optic cable to the entire U.S. and they stopped after what, like a month? Mm, yeah, that was. I know what Google. Yeah, Google Fiber was something. I'm not sure exactly what that was, but you might be on. There's the just right certain track industries there. that uh, people that have been around know how it operates better, uh, yeah. and you can't really just manufacture that out of. Uh, yeah. Out of tons of capital. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a uh, indicator that United Health may have a larger moat than. I mean, people think that United Health has a large moat, but it may indicate that they have one of the strongest moats out there. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Yeah. So Uber. Did you see this story? I think it was just a tweet. Um, an old. I don't know if it's old, but the company apparently used to spend about 150 million dollars on online advertising. And then at one point, they actually just stopped and then, or sorry, they stopped two thirds of that ad spend, so $100 million worth. And they found out that it actually didn't do anything. Their, you know, renewal rates or their onboardings were the exact same. So it's just to, to show that some of these ad companies for digital advertising, it's not just Google and Facebook. A lot of it's a black box, and you have no idea if you're advertising on the internet whether something is working. They can give you analytics and like, you know, we had this many eyeballs on it, but I mean, we tried yeah. advertising for the podcast one time, and that, talk about like the least effective oh, thing. So ineffective. I mean, we're, we were using Twitter, which is like double ineffective, but uh, but. Uh, y- yeah, I'm curious though if like that was just Uber's take because Uber could have had a network effect or sort of brand awareness that by then they didn't really need to advertise. But I feel okay, like there's companies that are not known. Yeah, maybe. maybe, maybe. So, okay, he said Kevin Frisch, the former head of performance marketing and CRM at Uber, told the tale of how ad fraud, specifically attribution fraud, ate at least $100 million of Uber's $150 million online ad budget. He said, quote, we turned off two-thirds of our ad spend, we turned off $100 million of our annual spend out of 150 and basically saw no change. Either the ads weren't just working or... I mean, $100 million and no change, especially earlier in their days when they had, you know, they were trying to acquire customers. I mean, does that just show? I think another example of this is when a company like, say, Spotify, larger company, everyone knows about it. When you search them on Google, they're going to be the first search result, right? But the companies that still spend for that search result ad, where it has the ad for Spotify or anyone, and then below, it's like, well, yeah, clearly, I'm just going to click on whatever. It's going to go to the same site. That feels like wasted spend as well. Oh, God. yeah. Like, uh, and you know what? It, it's 
triggers me as a consumer when I have, I think I've told you this, but when there's the two links and there's the one that's promoted on yeah. Google and yeah. there's the one that's not, I click the non-promoted one. Yeah, don't give money to Google. Yeah, Even though they on. go to the same place. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it'll, I think a lot, I mean, uh, it feels to me like a lot of that ad spend is wasted in this Uber anecdote. It's kind of anecdotal evidence, but it feels to me like we may be on the right track. Okay. Uh, you got some more, right? No, that's it. I, okay. Jack Mall is one of mine. Buy, sell, holds. Uh, the theme is basically 2021 reopening stocks. I think we've done a reopen one before, but uh, the three here are Alaska Airlines, AMC, and Disney. Ooh. I'll marry... Okay. AMC's out. <laughs> Killing it. Or not kill. Sorry. Yeah. We, uh, no we're selling, the selling AMC. Yeah, no respect for the theaters. Uh, I'll be holding Alaska Airlines because I do think they have a solid brand on the West Coast and they have a better balance sheet than a lot of airlines do. And I do think that the travel is going to come back in a big way this summer and they can get there. Um, but that's not a buy recommendation at all. Uh, please don't think about it that way. Uh, and then, you know, you got you to gotta buy Disney. Um, that's just a permanent company out there. They are at a bit of an inflated valuation right now. However... It's better than an airline or a, a theater company. Yeah, uh, I probably go all the same. Uh, anecdotal evidence: I have two. Two. Go ahead. Go ahead. Both of these aren't really like super anecdotal, but I've just noticed a lot of people that have never been involved with stocks or financial assets starting to give me advice. Yeah, uh, and I feel like that's usually a top sign when like the charlatans start. Uh, yeah, don't need, to, don't need to call them charlatans, but you know, I mean, it it doesn't matter. The ignorance, optimism. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I get free, I get fearful, I get fearful. That's really, it's not like it's a bad thing. On um, Hinge, I mean, I've been getting <laughs> these the a lot of these profiles are like, oh, I love Bitcoin. Oh like, yeah, uh, well, those are scams. Yeah, maybe I just uh, so I don't know. No, it, the I mean, you don't want. You don't want to tell someone that they're wrong because you may, I mean, they may be right, but you just want to let them experience something like this where they're getting very greedy almost 99, you know, 100% of the time things are not going to end out well for them. Hopefully they don't lose a lot of money um, and then they can learn how to be a real investor, you know, in the long run. I mean, we were there, you know, at the beginning, everyone's, everyone's like that. And that also leads into my second point, which I had a friend sort of ask me about, uh, you know, is it getting started in investing yeah. or whatever? And he's like, oh, I came across uh, Brian Feroldi's profile. I don't know. What okay. It, cool. Brian, maybe he has an Instagram or something, but uh, he came across Brian Feroldi and his content. And it just got me thinking, like, if I were going to tell someone to follow any one person at the start, It'd probably be him or a lot of the optimistic people that simplify things. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I am in like disagreement with the over-optimism, I guess is a way to put it. But that's just me being like some hardcore value guy. And it's not even uh, – I just typical investors with a long-term time horizon should follow that model. Oh, yeah. That's where – I mean, look, it's where you should definitely start. Yeah. And if, if it's not the strategy that works for you personally, there's a lot of other ways to go about it. You may just be an index fund guy, uh, but you really should, if you're interested in investing in individual companies, follow, you know, you should be learning from people like Brian. Yeah, definitely. And it, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, when he said that, I was like, could, well, that's could, good. That's good. 
it's so easy to get the wrong advice. It made me think about how valuable what the Motley Fool is doing really is because oh, they yeah. really are like the right funnel, the right entrance to the funnel for investing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'd agree. I don't know. Okay. Uh, that's all I have. Okay. Uh, mine is all right. Okay. Tobias Lutke, who is a famous CEO, Toby, Toby Lutke. Well, yeah, that's yeah. his name, both of his names. Uh, CEO of Shopify, he tweeted that his kids accidentally got themselves a virus on Roblox. Is that a red flag to you at all? What do you mean by that? So it's like they, you know how the whole thing is there. It's just kind of like social things, um, interactions in these environments that they make up and you buy like clothing or items and stuff like that. I think it forced them to buy things automatically. So it was kind of like, you know what I mean? Where this one code got them to buy things that would go to that person. It's a tough, that seems like a tough problem to solve. Um, but yeah, I, but I mean, they built the platform. I figure like they could uh, hopefully solve it themselves. Something to watch out for if you're looking, if you're waiting for that Roblox IPO. Um, keep that, you know, in the back of your mind. Yeah, is that just you trying to psych everyone else out from buying so that you exactly. can Exactly. Yes, exactly. Okay. Any others? Yeah. All right. I got a question. Is this a fraudulent way to manage a value fund? So this unnamed investment firm benchmarks itself versus the Russell 1000 value index, right? But they own MasterCard and Amazon. That seems very misleading to me. Yeah. I don't... Yeah. It just, uh, that like blows my mind that the benchmarks are so different between funds. Oh, and you can choose your own benchmark. It's crazy. You can choose whatever you want. I'm going to benchmark myself against the 10-year. Oh, yeah. yeah, Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Um, I think that's it then. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's going to do it. Thank you guys for listening. Hopefully, we'll have an interview for you next week. We want to remind you guys that we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. If you do have recommendations, feel free to tweet at us. Tweet at us. I think it's at Chit Chat Money. We have our email, which is chitchatmoney.no. Uh, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com mm-hmm. we've been getting a lot of recommendations just got a new DM today so we'll try to add that one in there uh, but yeah thank you guys for listening we'll see you next time mm-hmm.